Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. Today's episode is part two of our discussion with Dr. Ron Clark, renowned criminologist. We will continue our conversation on opportunity reduction technique, duty of criminologists, the scope of opportunity crime, domestic and international differences in opportunity factors, the security hypothesis, and the rational choice perspective. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Be a leader in loss prevention by implementing integrated solutions that enhance safety, reduce shrink, and help to improve merchandising, operations, and customer service. Bosch Integrated Security and Communication Solutions span Zones 1 through 4 in the LPRC's Zones of Influence while enriching the customer experience and delivering valuable data to help increase retail profitability. Learn more by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. You may be aware, I mean, what we're doing is we, we make full use of the, the 24 techniques, the, but the big five, if you will, you know, effort and risk and reward and uh, excuses. Um, we, we're sort of using those in everyday use, uh, you know, the terms of those are modes of action, like in how a medication might work, of course, and, uh, but we're, we're spending particularly a lot of time uh, trying to, art- to understand and articulate the mechanisms of action of a specific technique, as you probably know, and we're trying to get an idea of using crime scripting, which you have been involved in, and how, how do we break these down into very... Uh, usable steps and stages and aiming points and, um, so yeah. there's a lot of good work from from what you've done that's I think now coming out um, and we you know our team it's unfortunate we get two to four journal articles a year we don't live in journal world though we live in the real world so we're you know we're working on about 40 projects a year um, but 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 rest assured Ron uh, all your thoughts and hard work um, is really, I think, paying dividends in a lot of ways. But uh, I know those that come after both of us will do a thing. Yeah, um, I, I believe so. I, I, I mean, I think in one of your, in one of your, um, you know, prep things for this uh, for this session, you you ask why don't more criminologists do this kind of work? Um, it's a puzzle to me, frankly, why why they, I mean, many criminologists just don't seem to think they have a, I call it a duty to deal with the problem. Um, I think many, many criminologists don't believe that their role is to actually reduce crime. I think that that I think their I think that is their role. Uh, I don't think that um, I, if if the general public were aware that most criminologists are not interested in reducing crime, I think they would be rather amazed. That so much money and training and university uh, courses were 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 devoted to the subject. You know, we're we're not, I don't think we're here just to, I don't think our job is just to speculate about crime and think about it. I think our main job is to deal with it, or at least to not 
not ourselves directly, but to find ways of dealing with it and to help people reduce the problem that crime causes. Um, I think that's, the, uh, that's what criminologists should be doing. Uh, but that's a heresy to most of them, or to many of them. They, they, they just don't agree with that. Uh, so I, I part company with most criminologists, really, uh, just for that simple reason. Well, I can, where we sit, uh, we can almost look across campus and see an incredible array of brand new uh, research, but, but also clinical places for UF Health, you know, University of Florida. And, you know, our university uh, this year will probably accomplish over $950 million in sponsored research, but overwhelmingly that those funds and that research is, uh, some is preclinical, but most is clinical whether we're talking about engineering or business or uh, medicine and other disciplines to um, use good theory and frameworks uh, and rigorous methods, but at the end of the day, deliver value. And in our case, like you're saying, we think our obligation, our first obligation is reduce victimization to protect or safeguard vulnerable people and places. And, um, and so I, I appreciate all this preclinical and secondary data research that's out there a lot of good comes out of it, but um, you know you feel like the you know the emergency room docs. If there was only five or six of them, and you got another fifty thousand physicians over there working on cellular level research, you know you people are hurting and dying over here. So we need some help, so um, that's kind of where we fall out. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing, of course, is that many people think that that these types of approaches we're advocating are really only for uh, sort of trivial crimes, uh, like shoplifting. Um, well, I don't agree with that. We, we know that opportunity, for example, matters a great deal in homicide. Um, the, the simplest example of that is the difference in the homicide rates between England and America. Um, and the fact that, that uh, America has much higher, probably still about five or six times the, the homicide rate of England is due, to the, is due to one thing, the possession of guns. Um, that's an opportunity factor. Um, in Britain, it's extremely hard to get hold of a gun, especially a handgun. And it's handguns that are the, the, the main culprit in, in homicides in this country. Um, so it, opportunity matters for a whole range of very serious crimes. I mean, uh, I, I've done quite a lot of work, for example, on, uh, on uh, um, uh, uh, aircraft hijacking. Um, and it's clear there that uh, opportunity played a very big part in the great rise in aircraft hijacking that took place in the 70s. Then, then the introduction of baggage and passenger screening sort of began to wipe it out. Um, then, uh, you know, the 9-11 hijackers found ways around these safeguards that were introduced. Um, and managed to uh, um, 
take over those four uh, airplanes. Um, but uh, new measures introduced since then have pretty much wiped out the opportunities that existed at the time of 9-11. And we haven't had any uh, hijackings. Um, oh, well, very few, very uh, un relatively unimportant events compared with the 9-11. That was simply due to opportunity reduction. So, um, you know, opportunity matters for all, every, every form of crime. Um, and the sooner that we acknowledge that and get on with doing something about reducing the opportunities, the better it will be. Yes, for mankind. And I, as you know, we couldn't agree more here. And we're working with 68 major retail companies across the globe at this point. And uh, theft and fraud and violence are paramount for them. And it, it could be something as simple as shoplifting. But the shoplifting, as you know, that we deal with sometimes is highly organized and uh, they fill warehouses full of items. Some of the merchandise is converted, all of it's converted cash. Some even uh, has been used for to fund some terrorist uh, uh, activities. Um, but we're also dealing uh, quite a bit with intimidation and fear in parking lots that you know, the retailers are in a pitched life or death battle with convenient uh, ordering merchandise by your phone or whatever device. Um, so if that customer, she doesn't feel comfortable getting out of her vehicle or mass transit and through, you know, making it through her way through your parking lot, they've got a real problem. Um, if they don't feel safe because somebody has overdosed in your restroom or, you know, we could think of many, many other scenarios. So the fear of crime... Yeah, we've got armed robbery, we've got burglaries, we've got active shooters, and we're working with a couple of retailers on active shooting, and what can we done in the opportunity area, because that's the only area they've really got yes, to work on. Yes, yes. Well, um, <clears throat> I think there's a very, if I can change the subject a little bit, I think there's a tremendous um, uh, opportunity, again, for pushing this uh, uh, subject further. Um, in regard to the uh, uh, cr international crime drop that has occurred in um, uh, most westernized countries. You know, we've got much less crime, street crime, I'm not talking about cybercrime, just the regular crime that we've all been bothered about. We've got much less of that now than we used to have. And that is true in many other countries um that crime has dropped now uh, i believe strongly that that is due to opportunity reduction um i don't uh, the the explanations put forward for the drop in crime in america are very parochial and they mostly focus on um propensity and uh, motivation but um, if you, those explanations that are put forward for, for American crime, the drop in America, don't hold for other countries. But many other countries have had similar crime drops. Uh, yes, they have. Um, and uh, the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work 
of uh, Graham Farrell and Jan van Dyck and others who are arguing that the reason for the international crime drop is a, a massive increase in security. It's called the security hypothesis. Have you been reading their work? Yes, I have, Ron. And, um, and I think, you know, one thing I found that was interesting too is the how widespread that is, Ron. Uh, it's not isolated to, typically from what I've read, to wealthier or, or places with more resources, but rather even into... Um, you know, less economically advantaged places and uh, really across the yeah. globe. Yes, it, it, it isn't confined just to uh, wealthy people. It's uh, What's happened is that many businesses and organizations have begun to realize that that they can actually do something about reducing the victimization that they or their clients or their customers suffer. And they... Uh, realize that that nobody else is going to help them do this. Um, it requires too much specific uh, knowledge and too much specific type interventions, which only they can do uh, to protect themselves. And that has um, led to a very, uh, over the last 20 years, let's say, in all kinds of spheres of life, has led to an enormous reduction in ordinary opportunities to commit crime. Um, and that has benefited this country and many others that are like this country. Sadly, those lessons haven't yet been learned in the developed world. Um, I, I went to a conference the other day, which was um, about crime in South America and uh, Central America. Now, the people who were speaking uh, were very, very smart uh, and intelligent uh, in the sense that they could analyze things, uh, you know, analyze uh, phenomena very well. But mostly they were not looking at opportunities. They were still concerned with motivation motivation in the general sense. Uh, the, the lessons that we have learned hard about reducing crime haven't spread to the developing world yet. And the crime there is much, much worse than we experience nowadays in our own country. So there's a long way to go yet to get these lessons across. Let me ask you, Ron, if I could. Uh, I mentioned rational choice perspective. Um, your training, your background, your orientation is around psychology. Um, so there is some of that we're trying to, to communicate to people um, and convince people not to do something, or at least not here and now. Um, what could you maybe do a brief de uh, description about rational choice, that perspective, and how that saturates what we try and do, all of us, in crime prevention? Yes, okay. Um the, the rational choice perspective that Derek Cornish and I developed is actually quite complex. Uh, it sounds a simple idea. I mean, most people think it's, it's just a sort of uh, um, development of economic theory. It actually goes a lot further than um, 
than Becker's ideas uh, of uh, rational choice and crime, and, and, and even going back, you know, further than that, um, the, the, the way that we laid out rational choice perspective, we, we had, this is Derek and I, we had um, a uh, number of premises we developed. First of all, uh, offenders, the first one is offenders commit crimes to benefit themselves in whatever way we might think they wanted to benefit, not just economically, but there are dozens and dozens of different motives for crime as opposed to motivation. Um, and um, the rational choice perspective seeks to identify what are the motives for very specific forms of crime. Um, that was the first and fundamental uh, premise. Uh, second, because of uh, risks and uncertainties, offenders often make poor decisions. In other words, they may think they're benefiting themselves, but because they there's big uh, limitations in what they know about the results of crime and and uh, you know what's going to happen to them and whether they're going to get caught and that kind of thing, means that they often make poor decisions to commit a crime when they shouldn't. Um, so we have a we have a second premise of bounded rationality. We don't think that that offenders are highly rational. They they do the best they can to make decisions that they think will benefit themselves, but they often make mistakes and don't have enough data and so on. So it's bounded rationality. Um, next thing I think is that um, this is very important. Offender decision-making varies with the crime. This is a very important uh, premise, it, the premise of crime specificity. Um, crimes, we tend, as criminologists, criminologists tend to be overgeneralized about crime. In fact, there is enormous specificity. So just to illustrate this, um, I often give the example of car theft. So uh, I've, you, there's many different kinds of things that be, can be called car thefts. For example, stealing hubcaps for resale or badges for collections, you know, badges of Mercedes badges or something. Uh, breaking into cars to steal items left inside. Breaking into cars and stealing radios and other fittings um, that they can sell. And uh, um, joyriding by, by juveniles, where they just take the car, drive it around and dump it. Taking a car for temporary transportation. Stealing a car for use in another crime stealing and keeping a car, stealing cars for chopping and sale of their parts, stealing cars for resale, stealing cars for export overseas, 
and carjacking. Now, that's just a rough list of, of, of how many different forms of uh, crime can be called uh, car theft. And each of those different forms of crime are really quite different and have to be analyzed carefully uh, separately to see what is the opportunity structure for each. Um, and, you know, just a little thought shows you that the people involved in uh, stealing cars for chopping and sale of the parts are very different from joyriders, uh, joyriding juveniles, completely different groups of people. The opportunity structures for those two, two different forms of car theft are, are worlds apart. And we need to, if we're going to uh, um, address these crimes properly, we have to acknowledge that fact that specificity is extremely important. So that's another basic premise of the rational choice perspective, specificity. Then we, we uh, Derek and I thought, well, decisions about involvement in particular kinds of crime are quite different from the decisions relating to a specific criminal event. You have to have different models for both. Um, and uh, if you take involvement decisions, there's three different stages of involvement. That's uh, initiation, getting into that kind of crime, habituation, carrying on with it, and desistance, stopping doing it. All, all those things are, are different. Um, and um, lastly, I think our last premise was that um, every decision involves, uh, every event decisions, sorry, event decisions, that's uh, the decisions taken in a particular criminal event, involve a sequence of choices made during preparation, target selection, commission of the act, an aftermath, um, all the modus operandi has to be unpacked. So the rational choice perspective is much more complicated than most people would imagine. Um, and it implies a very uh, detailed uh, approach to uh, thinking about crime prevention than most people would imagine. You know, most people think it's rational choice. Well, the, the offender's committing a crime. He's weighing up the chances of getting caught. Therefore, all we need to do is increase the penalties. Well, rational choice perspective doesn't believe that punishment or doesn't advocate punishment because most of the punishment um, that is uh, most of the punishment theory is uh, not being supported by research. Punishment doesn't work very well. So anyway, that's rather a long answer to your question about the rational choice perspective, but I'm really just trying to uh, show that it's a very complex way of looking at crime. However, we have to do it, we have to do this, we have to get 
uh, we have to become specific and detailed and think hard about the opportunity structures of any specific kind of crime if we're going to do anything about it. And we, we, we take up that mantle, as you know, Ron, and with the, the practitioners from all these retailers and law enforcement that we're working with, uh, um, we use the framework, we try and help them break down what you were just talking about into diagnostics as well as uh, now we can be more focused. We're obviously very purposeful and now we can, we can have more accurate measurement to see what kind of effects do we get from the treatments yeah. or the options. So um, it's huge. I know my father's physician would tell us there are over 50 reasons your head hurts and you might want to know why your head hurts. And that's where you're going that it could be you're hungry, you're under stress, it could be much more serious. So, um, that, it, but, so we can't treat anything if we don't know what the problem is and that they're so different. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear you're doing that. Well, I know you're doing that sort of detailed work. It has to happen. Uh, it does pay off in the end, but it looks, um, it looks so different from most people's ideas about reducing crime that it's hard to persuade people that this is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. That's our collective challenge. And I think what we'd like to do is kind of um, roll, wrap things up here um, you know, what do you recommend? People coming into the crime prevention, criminal justice, but in our case, the criminology field or crime science field that really would like to make a difference, that really want to make people in places a little safer and more secure. Um, what, what's your advice? <laughs> well, my advice, <laughs> not so, right? yeah. my advice is yes. to become is to become very familiar with environmental criminology and crime science. That's the simplest advice I could give. Um, forget most of what, what is taught in criminology degrees um, and take with a pinch of salt what, what is often uh, offered in crime prevention thinking. And, um, you know, this all this stuff provides young people with a very clear uh, route for um, doing their work. Uh, it's, a, it's a model that works and it's crucial in science to have a decent theory. I think that environmental criminology and crime science is, is, a, is a good set of theories that helps people, you know, really make a difference. So that would be my simple answer to your question. Well, that's a great answer. And Ron, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Crime Science Podcast. Um, it's heard around the world by all types of people, academics and uh, practitioners alike. Um, and I really look forward to, as you and I mentioned before the podcast, kind of conferring, brainstorming, um, sharing ideas uh, in the UK and England uh, late this summer at ECA. So, I think you'll enjoy it very much. I'm really looking forward to it. It's finally an opportunity to get in, involved with ECA. Um, so yeah. I wish you all the best. Um, and again, a huge thanks for all you've done and continue to do um, in the field of protecting people through crime science and, and uh, crime prevention. Yeah. And at the moment, just my last word is I'm now thinking about protecting animals. Excellent. Excellent. 
So, you know, environmental criminology means shaping the environment to influence decisions. In your case, it also means doing that to protect the environment. Yeah. So, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So, brilliant work. Thank you work. for inviting me. Thank you, Ron. You have a great one. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.